Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Don't try this at home. I am a professional. Names are important. When a couple caught an intruder in their bedroom, the thief pulled a gun and announced, Now that you've seen me, I'm going to have to shoot you. He pointed the gun at the woman. He said, But I like to know the names of my victims. What's your name? Elizabeth, the frightened woman replied. The intruder looked shocked and then said, I can't shoot you. My mother's name was Elizabeth. Then resolving his composure, the intruder turned to the husband and said, How about you? Watch your name. The husband looked at the gun, looked at his wife, looked back at the intruder and said, Well, my name is Frank, but all my friends call me Elizabeth. (laughs) Your name can have a lot to do with how others view you, and it can even influence how you view yourself. For example, before World War II, the New York phone book had 22 Hitlers listed. But after that, none. The people changed their name because they did not want to be identified with the evil of that man's name. And if you think about it, the way the world would have looked at it, among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success would have been Judas. And the one thoroughly groveling failure would have been Peter. You see, Judas was a success in the way that most impresses people today. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money, the apostolic band, and he skillfully manipulated the political forces of his day to accomplish his goal. On the other hand, Peter was a failure in the ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. Now, time, of course, has reversed our judgments on the view of these two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of the most honored names in the church and the world. Two men, both who lived with Christ for three solid years, and yet two totally different outcomes and two totally different legacies. What made the difference? That's part of what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 4 with me. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. But Jesus said to them, Children, do you not have any fish to eat, do you? They answered him, No. The last time we were with the disciples in verse 4, we are told that they had fished all night and caught nothing. And this is where our story is going to pick up. In verse 5, unknown to them, Jesus is calling to them from the shore. And what does he call them? Hey, you bunch of backsliders. Nope. Rebels? No. Ex-apostles? No. Former disciples? No. Jesus calls these disobedient disciples who left him when he needed them the very most children. Such is the grace of our God. 
The Lord's question rendered in the Greek anticipates a negative response. Not unlike saying, so you've not caught anything, right? But here's where another true miracle takes place. When asked if they caught anything, these fishermen honestly answer, no. I heard one pastor say he saw a bumper sticker on a car that read, I fish, therefore I lie. (laughs) And isn't that usually the case? Fishermen usually would say, oh, the nibbles have been great. Or you should have seen the one that got away. But these guys had to answer sadly, no. They had to admit that they were utter failures. Now, if there is one thing that is hard to admit, it is that we are wrong, especially if we view ourselves as being spiritual people. There's a cartoon showing a pastor at home speaking to his wife, and the caption underneath it says, Spiritual leaders do not pout. They may become vexed in their spirit, but they do not pout. But what Jesus asked those disciples is the same thing that he would ask us this morning when we have been trying to go it on our own. Have you caught anything? Have you been successful? Are you satisfied? He asked these questions so that we might recognize our hunger, our need, and our failure, and thus turn back to him. And sometimes that is exactly what we need to drive us back in to fellowship. Oftentimes there comes a point in everyone's life where you do go back. And then you realize that it stinks. And that there's really nothing there. But it sounded so good. As you reminisce about the wind blowing in your hair, and the smell of the fish, and the rocking of the boat... And being back with the old gang again. It sounded so good when you initially thought about it. But when you actually got there, it wasn't the way that you thought it would be. You see, Satan has the ability to remind us of the kicks that we had back in the old days. But what he always fails to remind us of is the kickbacks that inevitably will follow. He doesn't let you remember those times when you had your head in the toilet and watched those little oxygen bubbles at the bottom. All I'm saying is there was a reason why we initially decided to leave our lives of sin, and it was because that sin can never really truly satisfy us. Look at verse 6 with me. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find the fish. So they cast it. Then they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. Now remember, these guys, as of yet, does not know that this is Jesus. They must have been tempted to have said, to tell this bold stranger just to mind his own business. After all, they were experienced fishermen. Who was he to tell them what to do? And did he really think The fish knew the difference between one side of the boat and the other? I want you to imagine that scene with me this morning. So you're in that boat, and Jesus has just given you, in the estimation of all the best fishermen in the entire world, 
the absolute worst advice ever. Now the question is, will you do it? It doesn't make sense to anyone but God. And it doesn't make sense to any of us either. So in the privacy of our own heart, would we have thrown that net into the water or wouldn't we have? I think we know what it's like to have him speak to us and with us to say, oh, come on. We've got to be practical. What will others think if I throw my net in the water and nothing happens? Just think how foolish I'm going to look. And Lord, it's going to make you look bad also. When we do that, we are passing up the chance to have something truly supernatural happen in our lives. And if we live safely with that kind of mindset, he could never have gotten us to build an ark on dry land. He would never have gotten us to bring down the walls of Jericho. There was never any military advice that seemed more foolish than the Jericho march. What? Just march around day after day? Lord, please tell me you're kidding me. We need an army with weapons. We don't need the high school marching man with those funny big hats and the trolling batons. I read that Mr. Getty asked an eager young man, or Mr. A young man asked Mr. Getty, what is the secret of your success? It's very simple, answered the billionaire. You rise early, you work late, and then you strike oil. Now, in a spiritual sense, how do we strike oil? How do we find success? It's really very simple. You do what Jesus tells you to do. Listen to what he's telling you in your heart. Perhaps even this morning, he's been dealing with you, speaking to you about a certain issue. But you've thought his direction doesn't relate to the challenge you face or the endeavor you've undertaken. Now the disciples could have said, we've been fishing all night. We're the experts. What does the other side of the boat have to do with anything? But they did what he said, and they were immediately on the right side. So too, you might be very close to success in the very best sense of the word. All you have to do is decide to obey what Jesus has told you in your heart. It's not mystical, and it's not difficult. It's just a matter of saying, you've been telling me in my heart that I'm supposed to do a certain thing. And now, Lord, I purpose to do that. Verse 7, please. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came into the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits away, dragging the net full of fish. So intense was his desire to be with Jesus that Peter could not even wait for the boat to reach the shore. 
Now, characteristically, John was quicker to perceive while Peter was quicker to act. I love one Puritan's insight on this. Listen to this. He writes, How like themselves are both these disciples. John is the first to perceive Jesus. The eagle glance of faith is quick to see the divine. With instinct of the loving heart, the bosom friend is first to detect his divine friend's presence. He imparts the calm, quiet recognition to his brother apostle. How precious this faculty to note and point out the divine in life, though it may be others that act. John is the seer, the lover, the teacher. But Peter is the doer. It is Peter that plunges into the ways and gets first to Jesus' feet. So it's always been between these two. John was the first to reach the sepulcher. Peter the first to enter it. John the first to believe that Christ is risen. Peter the first to meet the risen Christ. Thus we ever have these two classes, the men of faith and the men of action, the men of thoughtful wisdom and the men of loving zeal. The church's eyes and the church's hands are all helpful one to another and needful for the body. Let us then not condemn others because they do not see or feel exactly as we do. God's gifts are not bestowed precisely in the same measure. Some have more of one and some more of another. Some have gifts which shine in public. Others have gifts which shine in private. The church of Christ needs servants of all kinds and instruments of every sort. Pen knives as well as swords, axes as well as hammers, chisels as well as saws. I thought that was fantastic. What is he saying? Simply this, my beloved. We need each other to fully function in the body of Christ. Now some people say that the church is a place for people who aren't strong enough to make it on their own. Now that should be no more surprising than the fact that people sitting in a doctor's office are on the whole sicker than those who are not. But the main difference is at least we realize that we're sick. Churches rightly draw a higher proportion of needy people, but they also have a great number of people whose lives have been completely changed and filled by the joy of Christ. And so include me as part of that church, warts and all. Maybe this scene has caused you to think of another time that this exact same thing almost happened. In Luke 5, near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and they're having trouble catching fish. They go all night, and they've caught nothing. He says, I'll tell you what, put your net right over there one more time. They say, Lord, we have fished all night. It's not just it's not our night tonight. But at your word, we will try one more time. And they put it in. And they are overwhelmed with the catch. The similarity of the two scenes is obvious. Both times there had been a frustrating night of fruitless toil. Both times Jesus commanded them to let down the net one more time. And each time there was an instant and great success. Jesus is in the boat. They can't find their fish. With him, they can. Now what we have here in John 21 is almost... The exactly, exactly the same situation. They're out fishing. They're all in the boat. They can't find anything. It says they, when they got out, got out of the boat, they had caught nothing. 
Again, Jesus calls out, children, have you any fish? No, they answer. He says, well, throw your net on the right side. They do, and they're overwhelmed with the catch. But what's the main difference? This time, Jesus is not in the boat. Not only is he not in the boat, they don't even initially even recognize him. What this is getting across is Jesus is not in the boat. He's not there in a sense. They didn't even recognize him. And this is definitely John's way of saying, this is Jesus' way of saying, even if you don't recognize me physically, even if your physical senses don't sense me, even if I'm not physically present, I still want you to do my work in the world, and I can still help you to do it. Jesus is preparing them for the book of Acts. It's also interesting that on the first performance of this miracle, Peter sank to his knees and he said, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But this time, he cannot wait to get close. With his trademark impulsiveness, Peter leaps into the water with his clothes on and out swims the boat to get to Jesus. There's nothing more astounding than the difference of Peter in John 21 and Peter in Luke chapter 5. In John 21 and Luke 5, we have almost identical situations. In both situations, the disciples are in the boat. In Luke 5, they're in a boat. In John 21, they're in a boat. In Luke 5, they fish all night and get no fish. In John 21, they fish all night and get no fish. In Luke 5, Jesus says, throw your net one more time. In John 21, Jesus says, throw your net one more time. In Luke 5, they suddenly have an overwhelming number of fish. And here in John 21, they also have an overwhelming number of fish. Same problem, same situation, same intervention, same results. What happens? In Luke 5, Peter sees what's going on. He looks at Christ and he says, Depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. Just get away from me. You make me feel little. You make me feel small. You make me feel weak. You make me feel vulnerable. Get away from me. Depart from me. But in John 21, he ties his outer garment to himself and he runs, he swims, he waves, he fights the water. He runs like a crazy man and swims to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can. Now how do we figure that? Same situation? Same problem, same intervention, same result. But in one case, he wants to get as far away from God as possible. In the other case, he wants to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can. The reason why we have such a negative, extreme reaction in Luke 5, I believe, is because in general, we all want a kind of God. We want a vague God. We want a, a kind of God. But oftentimes we don't want the real God. You want a good example of what this would be? It'd be like kind of like impersonating a police officer. Now my guess it would be a lot of fun to impersonate a police officer. You could walk around doing pretty much anything you want, drive as fast as you want, and people will not question anything you did unless a real police officer was to show up. You see, if you're impersonating a police officer, 
The only person you're afraid of is a real police officer. Because the real one is the only one who can unmask you. A real one is the one who can show you what really what kind of fraud that you are. Likewise, left to ourselves, we all want to be our own God. We all want to be our own Savior. The way you find that out is when you get near a fake God, you feel all kind of like a Hallmark greeting card. You feel good, you feel inspired. But when you get near the real God, when you get a depiction of the real God of the Bible, the one who is a consuming fire, the one who has white, hot holiness, what do we say? Depart from me. Why? Because you made me feel like a fraud. You made me feel so small. You unmasked me for who I truly am. And I don't want to face that. The other thing we're taught is the reason Peter was suddenly able to run towards him is because I believe at this point, maybe for the first time, Peter actually understood what the gospel was. What is the gospel? The gospel is that determining factor in my relationship with the Father, knowing that it's not my past, but it's Christ's past. It's not my record, but it's now Christ's record that God takes into consideration. So Peter arrives as he runs. Why? Because when you have a self-image based on the true gospel, based on the idea that although sometimes I sin, I am still safe. Though I can be a sinner, he loves me. When you have that knowledge about your sin and the grace of God, the sight of God becomes sweet instead of bitter. Maybe in some ways the most important thing some of you are going to get out of this text is this is John's way of saying, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've blown your life, no matter what you've done to mess up your life or the lives of others, no matter what you've done, you can start over. If we could only truly believe that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary, our lives would really and radically change this morning. I'm telling you, you can have a fresh start. Everything can be wiped clean this morning. He can set you on your feet again. I mean, that is something some of you desperately need to hear, I think. You can be recommissioned. Your life does not have to stay on plan B forever. And that can begin this morning. Verse 9, please. So when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already made and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and hauled the net to land full of large fish, 153. And all there, there were so many, the net was not torn. It says Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire. Don't miss that. The last time we read of a charcoal fire 
We read about it with Peter warming himself with the enemies of Jesus in the courtyard. Try to put yourself in Peter's sandals this morning. The sense of smell is said to evoke emotional memory more powerfully than any of the other senses. I wonder as he stared into those coals, if his mind went back to that courtyard, and if he could hear himself denying Christ those three times in the crow of that rooster. It's not accidental that Jesus starts such a fire, or that the Gospel of John includes it in this much detail. He had denied Jesus by charcoal fire, and now he's about to be reestablished. Things have come full circle. It says Jesus was cooking the fish on the fire. Not only that, please notice that the Lord does not depend upon the efforts of humanity to accomplish his will. Jesus had loaves of bread already waiting. If you didn't know this, the wilderness in which Jesus had fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish was on a hill right behind them. And so Jesus says unto them, come and dine. Jesus said in John chapter 1, come and see. He said in John chapter 7, come and drink. And now he says in John chapter 21, come and dine. All night long, these disciples had been looking for fish, when all the while, Jesus had it right at hand, freshly grilled and ready to eat. Haven't we discovered this to be so? Haven't we discovered those times we went on our little sinful excursions, that when we came back, we find in him all that we had longed for all along. It's also interesting that in verse 6, it says the disciples were not able to lift the net. Yet the same word is used here in verse 11 to say that Peter himself was able to draw it in. In other words, in drawing in the net, Peter did single-handedly what the group could not do collectively. How? There's only one explanation. It was because the command of the Lord had been given. Why could Peter do what the entire group was unable to do? There's only one answer. It was because in verse 10, Jesus had gave him that command. And whatever the Lord asks us to do, he will also enable us to do that very thing. God's commandments are his enablements. That's what the disciples couldn't do in their own strength. Peter could do by himself simply because the Lord had said, bring the fish. The word that God speaks is the very source of power to do whatever he asks. If the Lord has asked you to do anything this morning, you can be confident he will provide both the power and the resources to accomplish that. That's one reason why we don't pass a plate at Calvary Chapel. Now, it's not a wrong thing to do to pass the plate. We just believe that if the Lord wants Calvary Chapel Princeton to continue, he will touch the hearts of the people in the matter of their giving. It then tells us that there were 153 fish. You would not believe some of the things I read, which explains why there were 153 fish. 
One guy said that there was 153 varieties of fish at the time, and so that allusion was to all the people groups of the world. Be glad you came today. I'm going to tell you this morning the importance of the number 153. You want to take notes here. In biblical numerology, if you read the text backwards in the Greek and count every seventh letter, well, you have a bunch of gibberish. So why did they count all the fish? I'll let someone much smarter than I explain it. D.A. Carson replies, It is unsurprising that someone counted them, either as part of dividing them up amongst the fishermen in preparation for sale, or because one of the men was so down, dumbfounded by the size of the catch, he said something like this, Can you believe it? I wonder how many there are. I think that's probably right. <laughs> Listen, there is enough real mystery in the Scripture that we don't need to invent any. Look at verse 12 with me for a couple quick comments. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to inquire of him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. How loving of Jesus to feed Peter before he dealt with his spiritual need. He gave Peter the opportunity to dry off, get warm, satisfy his hunger, and even enjoy some fellowship. That is a good example for us to follow as we care for God's people. Now certainly the spiritual is more important than the physical, but caring for, caring for the physical can prepare the way for spiritual ministry. Our Lord does not emphasize the soul so much as he neglects the body. Please notice that Jesus first fed Peter before he told him to go and feed others. That is critically important in ministry. Don't try and feed people unless you are already well fed. Otherwise, what you give out will not be nutritious. Instead, it will just be your own slanted opinions that's often generated from your flesh. But, if you are being well-fed, make sure you go out and feed others. Otherwise, with no outlet, you'll just become bloated and spiritually constipated. It's been said that if your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep will be your downfall. I can't tell you the number of times I've been given advice from people who think they are intensely spiritual, but they won't even get out of bed to go to a church on Sunday morning. All I'm saying to you this morning is be very careful who you allow to speak into your life. Well, we're going to deviate from our study in the Gospel of John next week to have our Easter message, and then the following week we're going to finish the book of John and then we will begin our verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of 1 Kings. Let us pray. Lord, I know what it's like to fish and catch nothing. I know what it's like to try to go back to my old life. But those times I have, you have exposed me to the futility of trying to replace you with anything else. It is truly, as your word says, your kindness leads us to repentance. So this morning... 
If you're asking us to do something, please give us the faith to throw our nets on the other side of that boat, no matter how foolish that may seem to us at this moment. And we look forward to what you will do with our obedience. We ask this in the name of our King, Jesus the Christ. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, I ask Elder Haynes and Elder Klein to come up and give us communion. Please take the elements back to your seat, and then we'll take them together.